Hello, you're very welcome to Amplify Archaeology and today I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Karen Dempsey, a researcher in the Department of Archaeology at NUI Galway. Karen, you're very welcome to join us. Hi Neil, thank you so much for the invite. I love listening to Amplify Archaeology so I'm delighted to take part. Ah, brilliant, brilliant. And we're going to chat today a little bit about um, medieval archaeology, castles and the fantasy fantastic relic plants project um but before we get stuck in i'm kind of always really intrigued in a way to find out you know archaeology is such a broad church there are so many different stories periods specialities and everything else um, that goes along with it i'm always interested to find out when i get the opportunity to ask what was it that drew you into medieval island in particular i think like I've always loved history and I know obviously archaeology and history are not the same thing but I've always loved the past Mm -hmm. and when I was young like I really loved old buildings and there's this super embarrassing camcorder video of me walking around about age nine or ten walking around uh, James's fort in Kinsale and asking like why is that there how does that how do you know that and I think I all my questions were like about ordinary things, like they weren't about big battles or, um, I don't know, pivotal dates. And that that's something that's definitely stuck with how I do do archaeology. But there's also like where I grew up in County Kildare and uh, there is an old castle, an old churchyard. And um, now I know they're medieval. But at the time, you know, I hadn't a clue they're in Geraldine Manor and we used to go down there and play make-believe and imagine who grew up here, who did what here. And so there's an idea of this imagined past and maybe being able to time travel because that was my long for superpower. Um, And I think maybe archaeology to me, as I eventually learned what archaeology was, is a way of being transported to the past or exploring the past, but true material remains. Um, so maybe in a in a roundabout way, that was how I came to archaeology. But medieval archaeology was because I studied castles with Tyg O'Keefe, who, who's been on your podcast before when I came to UCD. And I did that in an undergrad in classics, mm-hmm. but just always loved, loved medieval buildings. So it was felt natural for me to keep progressing with that. I suppose when we're thinking about medieval castles in particular and and structures like that we tend to think about the architecture and i suppose the kind of the conflicts or the conquest or whatever it happens to be that made that castle be positioned there or sometimes we might even think about kind of why it was placed in a particular area or landscape and, and things but you've taken a different approach with your project uh sowing seeds and that's looking at relic plants, isn't it? Could you explain a little bit about what the project is and how it came to be? Yeah, uh, relic plants are plants that survive in the landscape today that are unusual or non-native to that particular area region that look to have been deliberately cultivated or curated by people from the past. For me, of course, I'm a medieval archaeologist, so I was interested in the medieval legacy. And so I examined this idea at medieval castles. And so I was looking for plants that that in particular were of use in some way, whether spiritual, medicinal, emotional, sensorial to medieval people, and made me think of this other way we could look at past landscapes in order to kind of like get to the lived experience of people, which is often so so absent from stories of castles. Absolutely. It's, it's very much, when we think of castles, it's very much kind of focused on, you know, the, the person in charge, if you like, the person who commissioned the castle to be built. So that's a really interesting approach. And I suppose you touched on a couple of them there, but apart from using plants for food, how else would people generally use plants in medieval Ireland? So, like, there's furnishing you know so mats baskets of course things you know that people still use plants for today like thatch and floor coverings flowers were included in floor coverings for sweet smell plants were used in beer and i mean okay you can call that food if you want (laughs) but um other things like uh, nettles uh, which obviously many of us know for having medicinal qualities boiled in soup and having um uh they're, they're used to take down inflammation 
but they were also used to make things like rope and basketry and so plants have multiple uses in that way but there's also plants as medicine and plants having spiritual qualities and that's very wide ranging you know I think maybe a good example of how the two things come together is um there's folklore and archaeological evidence for house leeks being used as on grown on top of roofs or being included in a patch in roofs um and they're thought to ward off lightning strikes because i'm sure obviously fire was quite the hazard in medieval houses and or castles but the for for medicinal purpose it was also used as a treatment for uh, burns and skulls and so there's a, a sympathetic medicine going on there where the kind of idea of what like you know if if something um retards fire it can also be used to soothe and heal something that comes from fire i.e or burn and there's those two things kind of come together there but there's also aesthetic and flowers as gifts and the symbolism of the virgin and the rose and the lily there's so many things you could talk about with flowers as aesthetic whether for the peasant household or for the elite households of medieval castles that's really interesting. And I suppose, did the, do we know how the use of plants, again, beyond food, do, do we know how that changed after the Normans arrived? In a sense, couldn't plants be colonial in a way? Yes. <laughs> I'm not sure whether the plants themselves want to be colonial or not, but they're certainly involved in colonising practices. And I mean, we definitely know that from the early modern world to you know, the arrival of the tomato into Europe resulted from colonizing practices, mm-hmm. of course, going to the Americas, or of course, exotic species in Britain and Ireland from places around the former British Empire. But for the medieval period, um, there's been a lot of work done by medieval medicinal historians like Monica Green, where she has noted that from the 12th century onwards, new medicinal practices were spreading across Europe. And of course, you know, from the mid 11th century onwards, we have the arrival of new communities into Britain and from the 12th century into Ireland. And that includes people who were acquiring new territories and new lands, but also the arrival of the reformed monastic orders, who certainly were bringing medicinal plants with them to plant in in gardens. Um, And we have the evidence from medieval medicinal manuscripts as well, which show the curation of new of uh, the curation of native species to be used in a new way or the introduction of new species we can talk a little bit about that at castle roach where we have evidence for milk thistle which is a very exciting find so karen when i think about plants and archaeology i kind of tend to think about things like pollen analysis or carbonized seeds and you know we we chatted uh, i had the opportunity to talk about that a little bit with uh, professor mariel mcclatchy back in episode five of the podcast can you tell us a little bit about relic plants uh and the study of them what what's involved what kind of skills does come into it and and you know what kind of approach can you take what can it tell us about life in the past yeah so there's a couple of things for this one firstly i I want to caveat it and say i'm not a botanist and i'm not an environmental archaeologist either and so relic plant studies is about combining different um sources together so architecture so where would the green space in the castle be located i.e the garden or surrounding parkland history is there any historic source material archaeology not just thinking thinking about the social practices of people who were living in the castle at the time but also looking at things like archaeobotanical remains um are there um seed recognizable seeds and or plant remains that can be contextualized within the life of the castle mm-hmm. and of course folklore practices too not that I think folklore is directly applicable to the 12th and 13th century, I don't at all, and there's no such thing as a timeless past, but there's something about the longevity of certain medicinal practices that can be tied to plants and contextualised within with, with, within the appropriate way with the medieval period. Um, and in terms of relic plants themselves, specifically this approach involves the examination of Um, present day landscapes for the occurrence of plants that are non-native or rare to that particular location or region and absent from suitable surrounding terrain. That's a bit of a mouthful, but basically you just have to think about it as the plants being ancestral plants. They're descended from those introduced or cultivated by people in the past. 
They're often located in isolated stands, and that might be on masonry walls or adjacent to historic sites. For, for me, there is a particular type that I'm interested in. They're called archaeophytes. And this means that they were introduced pre-1500 into Ireland. And they're typically then, of course, known as non-native species. And this is a relatively new way, um, it's sometimes in the past 20 years of understanding these plants. And um, I did speak with uh, Dr. Mathachi about this. And she's, she has, um, we have talked about how it would be, I think that she is working on uh, creating a, a, a database that shows the exact introduction date or the earliest known evidence for. Um, so that's a project that she's working on. And, and, you know, that's another thing that I'll be able to bring into relic plant studies to show that maybe some plants were introduced in the ninth century, but they they didn't become common until the 14th. And what has happened in that time period or what's going on there? So it's about combining so many different relic plant studies is this really interdisciplinary way of working. And I think maybe that's probably why I'm very drawn to it because I love, I feel sometimes like um, a magpie, you know, drawing from lots of different sources. <laughs> I suppose more kind of, um, with relic plants, a, a kind of modernish example of that would be the likes of, say, Himalayan balsam or, you know, Japanese knotweed, these plants that were introduced by great estates or rhododendron, for example, that have, are still present long after those estates have gone and are now kind of busily colonising half the country. Totally. And we see that. That's the other thing is about the, the relic plants allows us to extend how we do castle studies because we get to think about the biography of the castle itself and its own life story as a romantic ruin in the 18th, 19th and 20th century. Because you have all of these introductions, like you said, like a Himalayan peasant berry or, or, or rhododendron mm -hmm. being included in the castle. And so it takes on a new life, but which is still evident in the botanical legacy. Yeah. And so you have this idea of this green heritage being, um, you know, so evocative of past time periods. That's a really interesting approach. And could we talk a little bit about the, the sites that you studied uh, as part of this and what the chief findings and, and even if there were challenges as well to, to carrying out the research? Because I know um, one of the ones I'm, I'm very excited to hear about is what probably my favourite castle in Ireland, and I'm sorry to my former colleagues at Trim, but my <laughs> castle is Castle Roach up in County Louth, which is just, oh, I, I could do a 10 hours special just listening <laughs> to people talk about Castle Roach, it's fascinating. Um, could we talk a little bit about your findings there? Yeah, so, so I started um, by selecting four sites and I tried to do them so that they were culturally similar but geographically diverse mm -hmm. in also in uh, areas that were also different in terms of landscape. And so that was Castle Roach, County Loud, Castle Cara, County Mayo, Carberry, County Kildare, and also Adair, County Limerick. And they're all similar sort of status apart from Castle Cara, which is further down the social hierarchy. But at Castle Roach, yeah, me too. I love Castle Roach. Of course, it's the only uh, historically attested castle to be built by women. And that doesn't mean that other castles were built by women, just that we don't have a historical record. And I think that's important to note <laughs> because, you know, um, the, the historical source material is, is very partial. And we can't assume everything is male anyway. But anyway, I, I digress. Um, so with Castle Roach, uh, you know, I it's a castle on a perched on a big rocky outcrop, um, selected for I'm sure absolute spectacular display, mm -hmm. and it's often understood. You know, long understood as a defensive site, defensive site. You know, built for the articulation of a very particular type of lordly authority. But you know, we know historically attested, built by a woman. And so now, of course, the castle looks quite empty and whatever, but of course it was a really busy place. It had a village market, it had a toll booth, it had, a, it had its own chapel, it had its own parish church. Um, and when we're trying, I'm trying to think of Rowija's landscape, what was it like for her? Was she here? We know Rowija had three or four or five children in very quick succession after she, after she married Theobald Walter. And so where was she? Was she pregnant at the castle? If she was pregnant at the castle, uh, we can assume 
she was, you know, what was she doing? And so one of the things that has been overlooked, I think, by focusing on the defensiveness of Castle Roach is the fact that it had gardens, it had this associated village, it had a market, a lot of hustle and bustle, it has gardens. Mm. And I went back to the original um, Latin transcripts and it says, it's translated as um, this castle has a, a, a park. But actually, when you go back, it says Gardinia. And Gardinia is a very particular word associated with gardens of castles. Now, they can be utilitarian or they can be um, ornamental. But of course, they can be both, right? Because we know that so many of these medicinal plants or even plants in general have so many purposes. Some of them are beautiful to look at. Some of them are beautiful to smell and also having medicinal qualities. And at Castle Roach, we found one of these, milk thistle. And it's it's a Celebrum Marianum. Don't, don't kill me on the pronunciation, but um, it's uh, got to do with Mary, the Virgin. Uh, it's, it's used for pregnant women to encourage milk production. It has other... It has other uses too, but I thought for this story of Castle Roach, that was really interesting to focus in on. Mm-hmm. And also milk thistle is part of a wide range of plants related to fertility in terms of Christian cosmology. It's included in all these medieval floral tapestries. And so I think that this allows us to reconsider Castle Roach not as a not only as a frontier castle, because Rowesia can be a mother and someone who worked on the frontiers, you know, it doesn't have to be mutually exclusive. And so by exploring the botanical legacy of Castle Roach, we can kind of access this multifaceted past of one medieval woman. Uh, that's very interesting. And was your study in some ways helped by the fact that say there's not been much activity at Castle Roach, like apart from, you know, the land is on pasture, it is grazed by cattle, I think mainly, Um, but it hasn't, let's say, turned into kind of a a major visitor site, say like Trim or or one of your other places, uh, Adur, wasn't that? Yeah, yeah, that's very true. And the the family who own Castle Roach are, are wonderful and they're great custodians of the landscape yeah you're right there's very limited impact and you know we found the most amount of relict plants at that castle in comparison to somewhere like Adair which is a national monument in state care and it's 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 kept in a very pristine manner so it's very much part of that 20th century conservation ethic which is all clean lines grass lawns monocrop And the unfortunate thing is, is that at Adair, there probably is evidence, there is evidence for an enclosed medieval garden within the inner ward architecturally. And I thought that we'd be able to find some plants in there that may speak to the time when it was a garden, but it's so sprayed with pesticide. I'm not even sure anything will ever grow there again. but where the pesticide isn't used in the moat, Fiona found so many um, typical water living plants or um, plants that grow in that sort of habitat, which would have been used medicinally like Artemisia and um, some self-heal on the banks. And so, you know, there's potential maybe for the, the botanical legacy to come alive again with more sensitive treatment. And I think that's one of the things from this project that was um, green heritage is really undervalued or maybe not even a topic of discussion in 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 Ireland. Yeah, it's something that, as I say, I hadn't really encountered it before um, before your work. And and it was one of uh, what attracted me attention immediately is when you're doing these really good videos. And the first one is you at Castle Rochard, like, oh, what's going on here? Um, so it's such an interesting kind of, and that's the great thing about archaeology in, in, in some ways is that there's always a different lens with which to look through at the past. And if we're only using the same couple of lenses, we're only getting one kind of view in a sense. This gives us a whole new way of looking at places like Castle Roger. And the other two sites, um, one was, Castle Cara was in Mayo. 
That's right. Yeah, it's on the lake, the the shores of Loch Cara, which is a really cool lake, which I don't know much about other than it's a moral lake, and they're really rare. Yes, lovely up there. Yeah, my wife's family comes from uh, father comes from around that part of the country. It's a beautiful place. Uh, what sort of findings did you get there? Did that kind of echo what you'd found elsewhere, or was it quite different? So Castle Cara um, was ended up being very interesting because we found no non-native species there. This could be because we surveyed it um, maybe after the flowering season, though we found flowering native plants. It could be that we needed to have multiple site survey days, Mm. but it also could be that there were no native plants grown or used by medieval people there, that native plants took on the same role um, as non-native plants by that time and by the time it was built but or medical traditions were different but I I don't really want to say that because you know there's always this idea of a divide of uh, Gaelic Ireland and Anglo-Norman Ireland but mm-hmm. for the elites you know medieval medicinal culture probably was circulating in with the same ideas um, but it could be that different plants have multiple uses. Yeah, and could even be, I suppose, a, a case of maybe they were there and they've been out-competed since. True, you know. and that, that's, that, that's also another point because at, at Castle Cara, the, the castle nearly becomes a romantic ruin from the 16th century, 17th century onwards because a historic house, an early modern house is constructed there. Mm-hmm. And that brings with it a whole range of plants that are known as neophytes. So ones that were introduced post 1500. And uh, Fiona found or discovered, revealed, identified a tree lined avenue that was um, lined with hornbeams. And she knows that they're only introduced, you know, from the 1650s or something onwards. And so there's a, an idea of one you were asking earlier with our plants in themselves, colonial, maybe, <laughs> maybe those post-1500 plants colonised the others. Yeah. And that, the, yeah, that the, that could have happened. So moving on to our final castle that you studied then, which uh, was Carberry in Kildare. And that's, again, it's a beautiful ruin but it's quite complex isn't it in, in comparison to say castle roach for example because you have got that multi-phase aspect it's in use a lot lot longer how did the relic plant study go there did it reveal much that any kind of surprises or was it kind of confirming some of the other results so it it was successful in that we did identify some relic plants there um and the the interesting thing is that Carberry, Carberry Hill, like you're saying, is, has a long history of occupation. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that there is uh, Bronze Age inhumations up there or, or Bronze Age burials. And there is an early medieval um, site. And then, you know, we have the the, the, the establishment of an Anglo-Norman Mott by Myler Fitzhenry. And then there is a later masonry castle by 1200 and then an extension in 1500s and a further extension from about 1650. So we have this site with a really long life. And by 1650, there's early modern gardens. And you can see that in the aerial imagery really, really clearly, like a a sunken garden to the front, potentially with a central water feature, as you'd expect of any sort of Renaissance style gardens. And then all around you have significant earthworks, which indicate that early modern garden. I'm like, did they they supplant the medieval gardens? we don't know. We don't know that. But I mean, judging by a, a castle um, of the same scale and size with the same associations with the crown and senior senior figures in Irish political history, you know, there's it certainly must have had gardens. So I had really high hopes, but um, the, the landscape itself is quite intensively farmed and we were, I think, very lucky to find the, the ones that we did, Hemlock, and Mallow being introductions, but Yarrow being 
um, native, but we also, um, drawing inspiration from Lorraine Foley's work up at Bactive, we also walked some of the townland boundary, which is very adjacent to the castle. And in that, we found some further archaeophytes. So saying that there, there has the potential in the landscape to, to survive in those sort of places that may once have been associated with the castle. So like historic boundaries. And I think in that definitely is one um, methodological advancement I would say that in all future studies, I would definitely survey those sort of bounded spaces around the castles. That's really interesting. I kind of, do you know, it just emphasizes the importance of the heritage of our hedgerows, which, you know, pretty much every year you see getting ripped out and, you know, chopped up or, or burned in some cases. It's a shame, but they have so many, they're not only important places for biodiversity. Yeah, I was reading during the week, I was reading this book by James uh, Redmanks called English Pastoral, and he has started to put back in um, hedgerows and do that that live um, where they you half cut the hedges and relay it so that they're thick and bushy for animals and for, um, I suppose, for flora as well, for them to grow in the sheltered spots of the hedgerow. Yeah, no, they, it's such an interesting kind of thing. And again, it's, it's fantastic to see a project like this looking at... I suppose living heritage and that over overlapping nature of heritage as well that it, it's not just the archaeology it's not just the architecture it's the living world around us and the importance of the interconnectedness of all of that and um, and i think you know it, it is such an intriguing way of looking at the past and i, I don't know I, I always find there's there's something kind of very tangible about gardening in a little way i mean i'm somebody who who tries and fails fairly often <laughs> And, but you might be kind of separated from these people who were planting the, you know, 800 years ago, 700 years ago. Um, but you're using fairly similar tools all the same. Like the, it hasn't changed that much. You're still getting your hands in the mud. Um, you know, is that something, is the process of looking at medieval island through this lens and looking at that kind of lived experience, did it give you a different view of medieval island than you had before you began the project? I think, yes. And I think that it was actually through gardening that I began to develop this new way of thinking about how the world is so interlinked and that's one of the things I issues I have with the, the natural and built heritage or natural and cultural heritage, because where does living green heritage fit in? And I know because it is tangible, but that's a that's a sort of aside. But yeah, I think my archaeology has definitely radically changed in the last couple of years. You know, a number of years ago when I was doing my PhD, like I did my very best to do a social interpretation of medieval buildings. But for me, the, the past that I was trying to populate was just all these faceless blobs running around trying to open curtains or close doors. I didn't give a time to think about age, gender, ability even. And that has definitely changed. And I, and I, I don't know if it's, it's fair to say, but I think later medieval archaeology in general kind of treats the past as a homogenous male space. And I really wanted to, you know, get to the root of the issue with gender, age and the senses and emotion. And I think the environment is definitely some place in which you can do that, like moving away from economic exploitations or um, status or anything like that to think about how did people live in the world, move their bodies through the world in these spaces and what did it mean? And that brings you back to much closer, I think, to how medieval people might have viewed their world, where, you know, the plants and gardens of all kinds were part of emotional, spiritual, bodily, sensorial aspects of daily life. You know, there's, you know, there's um, quotations from the, 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 the 12th century where um, a guy is sitting in Clairvaux, a, a medieval monastery in, in France, and he's lauding the the the, the beauty of sitting on a turf bench, feeling the sun coming through the dappled leaves and, and feeling the benefits, the health benefits of that. And there's definitely religious overtones there. But, you know, somehow I think that now with our appreciation of the, the, the vital importance of um, green, blue and brown space for well-being, mm -hmm. you know, there's, there's something to be learned from our 
supposedly, um, you know, people back in the past. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's, it's a fascinating thing. And you, you can see how it could lead you down so many different avenues of thought. Um, and it, it's always, I think, exciting to look at those. Kind of, that's why I, I, I like, I've never participated much, but I like things like experimental archaeology and these kind of ways of trying to, I suppose, connect to lived experience. And this is another way of doing it. I just think it's so exciting for that. And do you think that uh, this is kind of a very broad question now, so I apologise in advance, but do you think that the type of plants that we choose to grow says something about us as individuals and our broader societies, both today and in the early medieval period, uh, sorry, in the medieval period? Because I know, like, uh, you know, I always kind of drive Roshi, my wife, a little bit mad because every year I'm like, okay, I've got to do vegetable patches. <laughs> Everything's got to have a function and all those things. Do you think that that's kind of echoed in a sense with uh, how societies in the past perhaps chose to grow things? Yeah, I, I think that everything we do is significant. Every choice we make, even within the constraints of our own society or the or the constraints of the society they lived in. It says about who we are and why we do the things we do and what sort of world we want to create and live in. So there's something about your, me and you and our vegetable patch and the desire to grow and nurture is maybe something about giving back to a world we see as depleted. Yes. Or, or valuing something that perhaps lost its value um, for wider society and maybe for medieval people there was something about that too you know putting down new roots taking care of people that they you know loss of life was significant in the medieval world from from not only just about women and fertility but you know healthcare and disease of course they did have healthcare and disease prevention and looking after themselves but you know mortality rates were high and like now they have feelings and sadness and you know they're those sorts of things I think we can access by understanding the emotional value of plants or flowers or gardens. Yeah, absolutely. That's very interesting. Um, not to go off on a mad tangent, the other thing, apart from generally failing to, to grow fruit and veg, the other thing I always try to do is plant an awful lot for the bees. So uh, it's full of pollinator plants. And bees in the past played such an important role, you know, going back earlier centuries to, you know, Pre yeah, exactly. Mellifant, exactly. And did you see any evidence of, I suppose it would be very hard to understand from this distance if they thought about kind of planting things specifically for bees. Maybe it's just our industrial tarmac world that we have to think about planting <laughs> specific things. Maybe they didn't have the same need. I know there's um, a, uh, another medieval another medieval researcher, Lizzie Swarbrick. She's based in Edinburgh and she is researching specifically on bees. Mm -hmm. And she discovered that Rosalind Chapel has apries built up into um, the top of the buttresses in the finials. Um, bees were such an important part of, especially medieval lordly culture, for sure. You know, they curated bees, they had honey. Um, you, know, you don't have to look too far. Is Meliphant somehow related into the idea of bees being important? I'm not an early medieval specialist, but I know that bees definitely played a big role in uh, early medieval culture as well, didn't they? You probably know more about that than well, me. No, a, a little, I know it's Sharon Green who, who know far more than me. There's that whole law, isn't there? The law of bees. Um, I forget the, the the actual name of it in Irish, but yeah, it's just it just struck me then because that's the two things I try to to grow and I do okay on the pollinator stuff and I'm rubbish because <laughs> I generally forgot forget about it and find out the birds have eaten everything so better, yeah you know, that's okay I don't like that but you're giving back in a different way then Neil. exactly <laughs> do you know one of the books I've read recently it is something I think this whole subject of, uh, of plants and culture I suppose is something I've kind of become a little more interested in and it's something I'm kind of uh, very much just a the beginning of trying to understand and i've been interested in work by people like robin wall kimmerer who, who wrote braden um, sweetgrass and, and things like that and it's that sort of spiritual meaning uh that you couldn't often see in native american cultures in particular that are given to certain plants and do you think that there was a, a really deep 
spiritual side to certain plants that we know were grown here in medieval Ireland. Um, do you have the same kind of effect? Yeah, so firstly, that's such a beautiful book. And I only read that recently as well. And I found myself so drawn to how Robin Wall Kimmerer and how she, her, how she communicates Indigenous thought to us and how she conceives of the world. Um, after I read that too, I also read about how the Western world is now appropriating First Nations thinking and they're seeing it as a, a as an, another neo-colonial idea because in the past we were like, oh, well, I'm not saying us, but mm-hmm. in general, the Western world is like that way of thinking is ridiculous. And now they're like, oh, my goodness, everything can be solved by this way of thinking, but actually not appreciating the, the, the Indigenous scholars right. themselves. So I'm very conscious. I'm like, I am really drawn to that, but I, I want to be very, rec- uh, have a lot of recognition for the difficulties that came for your scholarship to be appreciated in that way. But um, I 100% think there's a, a spiritual side to medieval plants, completely. Um, and I think there's, a, there's, a, there's loads of ways in which that's evidence. There's sanctioned spirituality. The flowers that are associated with the Virgin and the like the lily and the rose were part of her devotional cult, i.e. how people were to worship her and how she could be seen and symbolized. But they were also a huge part of um, the Christian calendar. So like Corpus Christi, and they were used to decorate churches. They were an important part of women's life cycle. So there was a chaplet of flowers on their wedding day. And just this morning, I came across a reference where um, uh, there's a manorial extent being completed for Clonmel, and one of the lords is noted as having refused to provide the, the annual chaplet of, fla- of, of flowers. So there's that's you know so there was, it was obviously the flowers were an important part of medieval life, where they were coming from, what they represented. You know, of course, you could say that's part of lordly pow- power, but you know maybe there's something. More to that donation, it's about um, bonds or fraternal relationships, or I, I'm not I'm not exactly sure. It definitely needs to be um, explored more, and this is part of my ever developing project. But there's also plants and plant remains in burial contexts, and I'm wondering, are they grave gifts? So of course there's grave liners like sedge and but there's also buttercup and dock and of course they're colorful you know and um, they're yellow and, and dock and have purple dots on it sometimes there's pillows of plant material um not in an irish context there's an inhumation at holton abbey in is that leicestershire and it's wrapped uh, the body is wrapped in rushes there's burials on oak leaves and also um, more recently in Cambridge, they found the inclusion of elder seeds, which was used medicinally. You now, were they deposited with the body? Did the body decay and leave behind the elder seeds? I'm not sure, but there's also things like plum and cherry seeds found in burial contexts. I'd like to think that these are grave gifts. We think of the medieval, of Christian cosmology as of, you know, as um, uh, not including those things, but recent work by Roberta Gilchrist and others have shown that, you know, the burial of the dead was not without um, special inclusions from small pilgrim badges or, you know, the, even the, the, the scallop shells on top of the chest of medieval pilgrims, like we know things were included in graves. And I believe that plants were part of this. I think that because of their organic nature, we don't often discover them in archaeological contexts and when they are there we see them as a rarity and perhaps that's a a problem in how we interpret the past and or the archaeological evidence. That's a really good point I mean and and flowers of course form such an important part of our traditional kind of Catholic even Christian burial practices today you know um, and if you even think about the the high significance that gets attached in more recent years to particular particularly the Easter lily for 1916 for example or or the poppy which you know seems like everybody in Britain has to wear for the whole month of November you know um, it, they do carry incredible meaning don't they? plants mm. in, in some particular ways like that. something about there's something about the their own birth, life, death cycle that maybe speaks to our our concerns about mortality, our place in the world, because they have a they have a short lifespan, don't they? And for most things, and when you even you know that when you cut your flowers in the garden, yes, you're bringing them inside, but 
ultimately it's their death. Like, yes. It's yeah. something, <laughs> something about that. No, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, it, it's again that that brings me back to my own veg patch. It was it Diocletian. It was one of the great emperors, anyway, um, who. He kind of retired for a while and he couldn't. And this is the guy who, who had life and death powers over, you know, after no world at the time. And he couldn't bring himself to cut his own cabbages. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm definitely like that myself. I'm like, oh, I'll leave it another week. Maybe it's will enjoy. <laughs> it's funny. Um, I, I suppose we touched on it a few times now in the discussion. And it's something that you've really kind of brought to light, I think. And it's something that again when you're thinking about the context of castles and stuff can often get overlooked and that's the subject of kind of women and gender in medieval Ireland you know and like we we did talk about the the famous Roesia earlier and and I always kind of get feel a little bad for her because I mean this was a woman who who obviously lived a, a truly extraordinary life but the main story that if people's heard of Roesia, the main story that might come to mind is that kind of tale that she threw an architect or a spurned lover or somebody out of the window of Castle Roach and killed him so they couldn't, you know, build the same castle for somebody else. What do you th- what do you think it is that she kind of, you know, this woman who, who is obviously hugely capable, that's how she's remembered today. It kind of, I don't know. Uh, how do you feel about that bit? And and what do we know about somebody like Roesia, this kind of level of uh, elite woman, I suppose, in medieval Ireland? And what can her story tell us about the rest of the women of medieval Ireland? I know that's an incredibly big question. <laughs> so maybe let's, I can I can say, um, I'm, I'm, as with so many parts of the archaeology that I do now, um, I'm always learning and gender, gender archaeology, stories of elite women's lives wasn't something I encountered until a few years ago, since I did this other postdoc project called Her Story, where I looked at medieval castles from a gender perspective. At that time, of course, I thought that gender equaled women. It doesn't. <laughs> gender is all about everybody's life and lived experience from the, the board soldier carving uh, carving board games into steps while he's on guard in the castle to the saddler to the laundress who does all the washing for the castle as well as elite women and mm-hmm. um, of course elite women are more are to a degree easier to talk about than people who are completely absent from the historical and archaeological record sure. um but the thing is I suppose is that, all people are hard to access in the past but if we continue to define the past as default male i.e everything is male until proven otherwise then that's where we run into real hardship so like how can you ever say a shears is a male or a female object how can you say a spear is a male or a female object what does that even mean like you know you know so um i think that i really struggle even still with with how I tell stories of medieval women because um, I'm, I'm, I'm still learning all the time. But with the, with the castle studies, for so long, castles were seen as male, masculine, full of horses and sweat and no space for women. But like we're increasingly seeing through just small amounts of basic research that women were such a part of castle life. Maybe they didn't build every castle, but they were part of sponsorship, patronage networks, bridging divides um, between different uh, lordships, you know, through marriage, but also through acts of sponsorship and um, uh, bridging disputes. And there's there's so many famous examples of that, you know, from the royalty in from Scottish royalty to, you know, obviously the famous marriage of um Aoife McMurrow and Strongbow, you know, what was that about? And if we, you know, so there's so many things to talk about um, in that. And I don't also don't want to just focus on elite women's lives as important when they acted like men in the sense of building a castle, leading people into battle or because I think that everyday life and the sort of general experiences are just as important and 
you know, women's, the medieval period was um, differentiated in terms of gender, like men and women did have particular roles. And I'm interested in trying to access those roles of women. And I think the, that the garden was, was a way into being able to do that. That's really interesting, Karen. And I think it's, you know, it, it is fantastic to see these questions being asked in recent years. It's took a long time to start asking them. And do you know what, I suppose that's partly as well down to some of the historical records that women only appear in exceptional circumstances, you know, quite often. Um, so it, it's important to get this kind of more holistic view, perhaps. Do you think? I'm like, how true? Okay, women are less represented in the sources, but... I often wonder, like when I go looking for things, you know, I was looking at the Holy Priory Trinity accounts the um, from the mid 12th century. And there's like, there's so many women named from laborers who were collecting sheaves of oats and corn for the bishop to Emma, who was his washerwoman. Um, and people uh, brewing and uh, curating wheat for malt, for beer brewing. And I'm like, you know, even if women are only 10% recorded, that's much more than anybody ever says. Yeah, yeah, okay, that's really interesting. Maybe this is it, we're dealing with the prehistory, we don't have, <laughs> we don't have access at all. Uh, but oh, that's really interesting to think about these guys. I think with the prehistoric period, in a way, you have a different form. You don't have historical sources, but you have the material record, which in a way, you know, the, the written word for me is just another, it's another part of material culture. Yes. It neither confirms nor denies the archaeological evidence. The, the material world which we all live in is the, the, the richest source for understanding past practices, past lives, past gendered identities. Really interesting point. That's fantastic. And I suppose going on from here, Karen, are, are there any particular sources or websites or, or things you'd like people who are interested in finding out either more about the Relic Plants project or more about kind of considering some of these issues around gender uh, in medieval Ireland and in archaeology in general? Is there anywhere you'd like to suggest people go and take a look? Firstly, I just say thanks for the to the Castle Studies Trust, and you can look and read the final reports on their website. And myself and Fiona's, and I've also done two blogs there that you can that you can read. They're they're lighthearted reading. Um, in the in terms of gender in archaeology, there's a for there is a dedicated website, Archaeology and Gender in Europe, that is part of the European Association of Archaeologists. And that kind of has lots of contacts for other gender archaeologists across Europe and beyond and recent publications and things like that. So that could be an interesting place if people wanted to learn more about uh, gender and archaeology. Um, I've, other than that, there's no, oh yeah, actually, and they've just done a really cool open access publication with Sidestone Press. And um, it's a kind of, it's about 23 stories of typical gender stereotypes. And it's in, done in a kind of, um, not, I'm trying to think of the word, not comic, but um, graphic graphic novel okay. and it's done in this sort of design and it's black and white with orange writing mm -hmm. and it skewers every single gender stereotype that you've ever encountered you know um i.e no sex um no <laughs> women were only caretakers or men were only hunters or uh, children didn't exist or that sort of thing and it's really it's really great it's really well produced as well Brilliant. And I'll put links to all of these in the uh, the show notes of the episode on our website. Oh, well. fab, because it's it's open access as well. So fantastic. So it's, yeah. it's a great, it's a great resource. So uh, listen, Karen, that's been absolutely fascinating chatting about this. And do you think there's a do you hope to continue the project into the future? Do you have other plans? I, I do, yeah, I really do. And um, I'd like to do way more relic plant surveys, not just here in Ireland, but also in Wales, England and Scotland. 
I have done like some preliminary work and there was a big survey done in 1994 by Anne Connolly, an ecologist, and she noted all of these really unusual plants located along the coastline of Wales at significant medieval monastic and castle sites. And I'd love to go back and do uh, another survey and see if they're there as well. And also because that would speak to climate change, like what's happening, why are they disappearing, but also add to our archaeological historical knowledge too. So I think there's so much scope for, for me to do more work, but also for local communities to do more work. Mm-hmm. I'd love to do something collaborative with um, you, O'Neill, <laughs> or the Heritage Council or somebody like that. And, and of course, with Fiona as well, my project partner, where I do like, um, I don't know, maybe like a card with or a downloadable sheet with like six notable species to maybe record or notice or if they were present at the, you know, local church, local castle. Everybody knows from their, you know, know your 5K, all of these sites that are in their local area. It'd be great to get them thinking about green heritage as well. Absolutely. There's so much potential with that. And I think, again, it's it's one of those beautiful projects where I, I absolutely love projects that have that um, multi-layered kind of approach that it's not just about the archaeology it's not just about the history it's about the natural world as well it's about the social side of it or the folklore all of these different things and, and this project covers so much of that it, it, there's tremendous potential there so i really hope to see it develop thanks so much again karen it's been a real pleasure talking to you today thank you thank you So that's it for this episode of Amplify Archaeology. And thanks so much again to Karen for her time and insights. I really enjoyed that chat. And I hope you enjoyed it too. If you did, please leave us a review on your favourite podcast platform. If you can, or even better still, tell a friend or share it on social media with the hashtag Amplify Archaeology. It really does make a difference and help us to be found. Thanks again for listening, and if you'd like to dig deeper into the stories of Ireland, do consider joining our new membership service, Tour, where I have an online course in Irish archaeology, along with lots of itineraries and info on places to visit and things like that. I really look forward to seeing you there. Until then, take care, and I'll see you next time on Amplify Archaeology. Amplify Archaeology